This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, August 15th, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellams. Thank you for being with us as a new week begins. Plenty of beginnings on our show today in a moment. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth reports on the start of a new school year and how teachers, parents, and students will be dealing with yet another semester with COVID-19 as a concern. In our second half hour, the beginning of a new art museum in Eureka Springs. And we also have the story of how an infamous New York gangster began a new life in Hot Springs. Oni Madden is the subject of this week's Prior Center Profile. Most school districts in our region return to the classroom this week, and with the COVID-19 BA4 and BA5 subvariants still circulating, health officials warn children and parents still need to take precautions to stay safe this semester. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth reports. After more than two years of uncertainty around public health, Dr. Joel Tumlison is hesitant to make predictions. Yeah, so I hesitate to give projections. However, I think over the last week or two, there's actually a little bit of good news with the direction that, you know, the number of cases, uh, et cetera, in Arkansas uh, is going. The medical director for immunizations with the Arkansas Department of Health says while cases of COVID-19 in Arkansas have seemed to slow in recent weeks, The biggest challenge for schools this fall is complacency. You know, I think, you know, the the issue uh, for schools and children and family with kids in schools is just remembering that, hey, you know, we are still dealing with COVID-19. It still is um, something you're going to have to deal with this school year. and, And you need to take certain precautions because of that. So while coronavirus cases have been on a slight uptick this summer, with new cases hitting a peak in early July at more than 2,300, the trend has been going down. On Friday of last week, active cases of the virus were near 11,700, their lowest level since July 5th. But Tumlison says he does expect to see an uptick in COVID-19 cases among 5- to 18-year-olds as schools in the state start up again, and says that could be a cause for concern. Even though, thankfully, children get severe illness from COVID less often than especially older adults or those uh, over 50 with medical problems, uh, et cetera, they still can get um, severe um, cases of COVID. Um, And also with the uh, patients that have had COVID, even mild cases, uh, up to 25% of them getting long COVID. uh, And there's still so much to be learned about that, but children can get that too. So getting a vaccine although it's not 100% protective from ever getting an infection, uh, is still the best preventive measure that we can take right now. The percentage of all Arkansans who are fully vaccinated is just above 55%, while 41% of that population has received a first booster dose. Tomlinson says the Department of Health has been making strides, though, in getting more school-age kids immunized. The percent of Arkansans with at least one dose of COVID vaccine uh, in these different age groups, if we use the comparator group as those adults between 18 and 64, 65% of them have have at least one vaccine. So for the highest school age group, ages 12 to 17, um, 56% of them actually have one dose. So it's lower, but it's fairly close there with um, adults in general. However, in the um, younger school age group of 5 to 11, only about 24% have had at least one dose. Um, so you see that's, that's quite a bit lower, and there's a big 
big difference in that. Now, for the 12 to 17-year-olds, they're kind of almost in line with uh, adults, uh, despite having a little bit of a less time to um, get up to date with their vaccines. In June, a coronavirus vaccine was approved for children below age five, but Tumbleson says data for that is still pending. Really, we're talking about daycare. You know, the, the numbers are still so low right now, it's hard to, to say um, where they're at because they've really not, hardly any of them have had a chance uh, to get that second dose yet. Marsha Lynn Jurgen Alsop, a medical officer with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, says many parents have been hesitant to vaccinate their kids, especially younger ones, out of concerns for safety of the vaccine and other misconceptions about COVID-19. And we often hear um, parents and others in the community say that they're less interested in getting younger children vaccinated because they believe that they don't get as sick from COVID. However, since the pandemic started, thousands of children have been hospitalized and hundreds have died. So the most powerful strategy that we do have to protect children against COVID-19 and prevent severe illness is vaccines. She says the CDC has been monitoring side effects among kids and adolescents, including those five and under, who recently became eligible for the vaccine, and says most side effects are mild and short-term. So far, the side effects have been um, very minor and transient and very similar to side effects from other vaccines. And those include pain, swelling, and redness, where the shot was given, swollen lymph nodes, irritability, sleepiness, loss of appetite. Jurgen Alsop encourages parents to enroll their kids in the CDC's new V-SAFE program to help the organization monitor the effects of vaccination in real time. Um, Once a child has been vaccinated, information can be entered into V-SAFE, which is a monitoring system for any side effects or any reactions or just describing what the overall experience has been. Website for that, that's vsafe.cdc.gov. So parents are encouraged to not only vaccinate their children, but to also register them in vsafe. And while most coronavirus restrictions in schools across Arkansas have been dropped, Tumbleson says parents should consider keeping some of those personal safety habits from the last two years in place this fall. The management of it has gotten a little bit easier for this school year. I would say, you know, if you're living in a, in a county um, where the COVID-19 community level, uh, per the CDC maps, is high, and that's uh, the majority of counties in Arkansas at the present, um, then, you know, consider sending your kid back to school wearing a mask. Uh, that's what I'll be doing with my kids. And once your county drops down, the risk is less, then, then maybe you don't have to do that anymore. Um, and those are the, some simple recommendations that I'd make. Also, remember, and something that's very important for schools to help them keep the environment safe for your kids is please, um, if your kid has symptoms that could be COVID, please don't send them to school. Um, find out if it's COVID. Test them. Uh, consult your doctor if necessary before you just send them to school and they might um, pass it on to someone else. 
COVID-19 vaccines are free to anyone six months old or older living in the U.S., and you can find the closest vaccine provider near you when you go online to vaccines.gov. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. Daniel Carruth's reporting comes to us from the Karen Taha News Studio. The cities of Rogers and Prairie Grove are among municipalities sharing more than $50 million from the Arkansas Department of Agriculture's Natural Resources Commission for water projects. The city of Rogers received a $31 million loan from the Clean Water State Revolving Fund to construct a sludge drying facility capable of producing a Class A biosolids product. And the city of Prairie Grove will use a $2 million loan to expand the wastewater treatment facility there. Governor Asa Hutchinson says he's concerned about former President Donald Trump's handling of classified documents. Yesterday, Governor Hutchinson told CNN he wanted to know how and why top-secret information was found at Mar-a-Lago, the former president's home in Palm Beach, Florida. The governor was once a U.S. attorney and an official at the Department of Homeland Security. He said he plans to hold back judgment on the law enforcement conducting the raid while he waits for more information. If you want to hold people accountable, it is the Department of Justice. It is the attorney general who said he supervised that. The FBI is simply carrying out their responsibilities under the law, a lawful search warrant uh, that uh, a magistrate signed off on. And uh, they didn't go in there with FBI raid jackets. Uh, They tried to constrain uh, their behavior carrying out that warrant. So let's be uh, let's support law enforcement. Let's stand with them. On Friday, the FBI revealed some of the recovered documents contained so-called sensitive compartmental information. That means the information contained important national secrets that could cause, quote, exceptionally grave harm to the United States. The Arkansas Times and the Arkansas Cannabis Industry Association present the Medical Marijuana Health Expo Saturday, August 27th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Northwest Arkansas Convention Center in Springdale. Medical professionals, pharmacists, and local bud tenders will lead seminars on treating a variety of symptoms with medical marijuana. Details and tickets at centralarkansatickets.com. A big thank you to the Fayetteville Public Library and the more than 600 of you who came to the library Friday night for a conversation with Henry Rollins to help launch the Innovation Lectures Series that will take place at the library. It was a thrill to be on stage with him for the conversation titled, Libraries Are Punk Rock. KUAF, Ozarks at Large, and the Fayetteville Roots Festival will be teaming up again later this month for a live edition of Ozarks featuring performers from this year's Roots Festival. Join us Friday, August 26th at noon for a free hour of live radio and music in the Fayetteville Library's new event center. And if you can't be with us there, you can join us here on Ozarks at Large at noon, Friday, August 26th. Excuse me, I'm looking for Mr. Dutch Schultz. Do you know him? Sure. Everybody knows a Dutchman. Do you work for him? No. I work for myself. My name is Only Madden. And you? You're Only Madden? Yeah. You're very famous. <laughs> I'm Vera Cicero. You own the Cotton Club, right? I own a lot of things, Miss Cicero. This is Ozarks at Large. With me is Randy Dixon from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Hello, Kyle. Hello, Randy. What did we just hear? Well, that was from the 1984 Francis Ford Coppola film... Cotton Club, and that was Bob Hoskins and Diane Lane. Bob Hoskins plays, as you probably heard in that clip, uh, a mobster named Oni Madden, and that's who we're going to profile this week. Yes, why is this legendary 
a sort of New York-connected mobster part of what we do today? Well, he wound up in Hot Springs, Arkansas, lived his life out there. Um, and so we're going to tell the tale of Oni the Killer Madden. He was born in, in Leeds, England in 1891, but his family moved over to America shortly thereafter, and he grew up in New York City in Hell's Kitchen. And, you know, that can be a rough place to grow up, but he adapted. And by the time he was 21, he was the leader of a really, really tough street gang, the Gopher Gang. The Gopher Gang. Yes, and he got the nickname The Killer because of his violent, crazy temper. And I just want to interrupt. You usually don't get the nickname The Killer because you're very good with tulips. Well, that's true. <laughs> usually that's assigned to someone yeah, who— or an exterminator right. of some sort. Yeah, right, well, right. but maybe he was. Um, he, he would just brazenly kill people, um, a, a couple of them at least. And uh, it was usually over a woman, that or gang-related. Mm. But um, one of his most brazen— just to digress a little bit. Sure. Um, he had a lot of girlfriends, and there was a store clerk who had asked out one of his girls. And so he stepped onto a cable car full of people and just blew him away. Mm. Of course, no one saw anything and no one testified against him. So right. um, he uh, he came by that nickname pretty Pretty honest, I okay. suppose. <laughs> so anyway, he did end up in jail, in prison. Um, he had uh, a rival gang leader uh, killed. Uh, his name was Little Patsy Doyle. Uh-huh. And um, he was sentenced to 20 years, only served nine of it in Sing Sing. And when he was released in 1923, um, he bought what is now the world-famous Cotton Club. He bought, yeah, he bought the club from Jack Johnson. The boxer. Yes, yes. Um, and it was a place called the Deluxe in Harlem, and he changed the name to the Cotton Club. And like I said, it became world-famous. So it's still open today. And it had been closed for a while and then reopened. Yes, right, yeah. Um a gentleman by the name of John Beatty reopened it in 1978, and he's still uh, the owner. So I wanted to just hear from him about uh, what it was like back in the day, the history that I'm sure is still a part of the Cotton Club. So I I found him in New York. Actually, he wasn't in New York. He was... He was uh, Elsewhere in the country, traveling, but uh, he was nice enough to talk to me. And um, here's John Beatty talking about uh, the club that was once owned by Oni Madden. So along came Oni Madden, and he needed a place to sell his booze, illegal booze, and uh, nightclub. So he made a deal with Jack and bought the club, and he renamed it Cotton Club. That was in uh, 1923, and uh, all of the white 
entertainers came up town after they finished work downtown. And they came up to Harlem and sat in and played. That was John Beatty. He owns the Cotton Club, which was once owned by Oni Madden, a notorious, infamous gangster who does end up living in Hot Springs. Yes. And Oni Madden is the subject of this week's Prior Center Profile. That's right. Now, at this point... Uh, Oni Madden is really riding high. He's he's done his time in Sing Sing. He's out. He owns the Cotton Club. He also owns part ownership in about 20 other clubs. He has a cab company <laughs> in New York City. Um, and then he also has uh, a liquor manufacturing operation. So... Um, his his the Cotton Club. Let me tell you how big it was. Uh, the house band from twenty seven to thirty one was Duke Ellington. Ooh. Well, and when he couldn't do it, he would have this guy named Cab Calloway and his band fill in. Wow. wow. Well, Louis Armstrong played there. Lena Horne sang there. Now, here's the thing. All the performers and dancers, which was top-notch entertainment, were all black. Mm -hmm. And there were only white uh, patrons allowed in. Mm. So it was very, I guess, segregated. Sure. Sure. And the performers were not allowed to interact with the patrons. As a matter of fact, when they would go on break, they would have to go next door and they would hang out in a in the basement of a building next door. But anyway, he's got all this going on. Um, and there's a name that's going to come up in a minute, uh, Joe, Joe Kennedy, okay, who was a liquor distributor at the uh-huh. time. Now, this is during Prohibition. Yeah, right, right. Well, Joe Kennedy right. was Joseph Kennedy. Right. Father of former president JFK. Right. So that's going to come up a little bit. Uh, They weren't always on good terms uh, because they were kind of, you know, competing with each other because he he had his his operation going and apparently Kennedy had his. Um, Now, as far as the move to Hot Springs, the details are very, very murky. But... um, I have three interviews here, all people who are quite knowledgeable about Oni Madden's history, and they all they, they have similar but slight details uh, that are different in the scenario. Okay. So I wanted to, to do all three of them. Now, our first is from a former FBI agent, uh, Floyd Thomas. We heard from him last week. He was he, talking about the boxes that would come out and of go the to Orville Faubus's uh, at the mansion, right? Um, so, in in addition to that, in his interview, he spoke to the Prior Center in two thousand and six, and he was assigned to Hot Springs during that time. But here's what he has to say uh, about Madden. Only Madden owned a yellow cab company. And yellow cab, the taxis are a pretty good way to distribute illegal drugs and things around the city. And only I understand, I, he didn't tell me this, but I understand that he was of the opinion that Joe Kennedy had him 
on a, on an extortion case. So they, they got over on him and convicted him of extortion, but instead of sending the penitentiary, the judge told him to get out of New York and don't come back. So he went to Hot Springs, only dead, and married the postmaster's daughter. Lived, lived in life, nice lifestyle, and as far as I know, it never worked. And uh, but he, he did get along, and he did, did, have, did have his ways. But I don't have it. That, 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 and all he that hung shit. out at the Southern Club. Yes. Go to every morning, drive his house over on Grand Avenue downtown to the Southern Club. Sit there at the, at the table with the window. And uh, there's a detective there that. I finally got to visit with, we got friendly with more or less. He'd get talked to, he wore alligator shoes. And this is a Hot Springs City police Hot, Hot Springs detective. City detective, wore alligator shoes and alligator belts and alligator billfolds and had five. He had an expensive lifestyle. Yeah, as a, as a police officer, yeah. But, but he also drove on a bad around. He wanted to go out of town, so he, he, he was on his chauffeur, on his, he'd sit there at the table with on a lot at the Southern Club. All right. <laughs> so he was talking about the Southern Club. Right. Uh, Oni Madden was, a matter of fact, uh, a part owner. He apparently had his fingers in a lot of things, but he was really good at flying under the radar. Always, well, unless he's killing somebody on a cable car. Right, right. Uh, but w once he got to Hot Springs, he, he, you know, just was out of sight. As a matter of fact... Looking through all this in my journalistic investigation, I looked through KTV's material. There is not a single frame of Oni Madden. Interesting. And there are very few photographs, period. But uh, KTV never got any footage of him. Mm. So he was, he was good at staying out of the limelight. So last week we heard from David Hill who wrote the book The Vapors, which is about gambling in the, in the spa city over the years. And um, here's his take on Madden's move. The only Madden came to, to Hot Springs in the 1930s. He was um, a big-time New York City uh, crime boss, and uh, he had gone to jail for murder. And when he was released, you know, there were rumors that there was sort of a, a backroom deal cut with the governor of New York that, if he was released from jail, that he would, um, you know, that he'd hightail it out of the state. And so, you know, he relocates to Arkansas where, uh, the, you know, the, the mob had some real interest in what was going on there. And, uh, he, he already had relationships down there. He had, there was a woman that he was, um, seeing that lived there. And, um, he, uh, he kind of became their man in Arkansas and ended up living the rest of his life there. But Oni Madden was a very well-connected person in sort of the national crime syndicate. And uh, his his presence in Arkansas also, I think, afforded Hot Springs a lot of privileges and um, and benefited a lot of the gambling clubs in Hot Springs that worked with Oni Madden. Okay, let's hear one more sure. about the move. And um, this is a man who owns... A museum in Hot Springs. Oh, the Gangster Museum. Yes. Yeah. Yes, Robert Raines. Uh, have you been there? I have. I have. Have you? Yeah. I, I have not, but I next time I'm in Hot You're Springs, gonna go. I'm definitely going to go. But uh, let's hear from Robert Raines about, you know, what he knows, because he knows 
I mean, owning the museum, he would obviously know all things, you know, gangsters and gambling. But here's what uh, Robert has to say. When he came here, he knew a little bit about Hot Springs already because a couple of his real good friends were Ralph and Al Capone. And Capone, of course, went to work for Torrio, who was also from New York. And so these guys had already been down here, Torrio down here early in the late 20s. I say early in the late 20s, let's say 20 to 25. When he was running the outfit, he would come down here with his wife. That would bring Capone down here. So a lot of stories about Hot Springs and the amenities of Hot Springs went back to New York and ultimately to Chicago. It was just sounded like a pretty good place for people to go, not just from a tourism standpoint, but early on, there was kind of a, a hidden uh, word here that the police and the law in general here were kind of in on the game, and they just uh, they could be a. Uh, very cooperative. That is the Robert Raines, the owner of the Hot Springs Gangster Museum. Yes, and he mentioned, you know, Capone right. and Torrio. Right. That's Johnny Torrio, who was a Chicago gangster, but he was very familiar with Hot Springs. You hear all these names thrown out, and I would just have to go back and look some of them up. I mean, some of them you know, you know, Al Capone, Bugsy Siegel. Right. But then you get into some of these others. Uh, so, you know, they were always depicted in uh, gangster films, especially back in the 30s and mm-hmm. 40s when you had Cagney and uh, Edward G. Robinson. George Raft? Well. Okay, okay. No, uh, I, I mean, you want to go ahead and do it? We can go into it now. I was going to hold it for the end. Let's hold it till the end. Okay, a little Forget bit I about said that. Yes. famous actor, yeah. played tough guys, yes. George Raft. We'll save that. Okay. Back to the prior center interviews, I was some of the folks in the office uh, remembered that one of our previous interviews uh, had talked about the gambling, and he was a former FBI agent. So in 2012, the prior center interviewed Orville Albritton. So he's a sort of a historian on Hot Springs, and he's written um, several books about the history of Hot Springs and gambling in some of them, but he talks about the politics that were involved with Hot Springs and the gambling issue. The question of every election uh, was an open town or a closed town. Closed town meant no gambling, and open town meant wide open. And so you had these two factions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, sometimes uh, people would say, well, it's a church faction. Not necessarily. A lot of the church people were also business people, and they saw the advantage of, of uh, the town being exciting and bringing in people and so forth. But they were pretty well balanced. But generally, uh, most of the time, the open town people had it. And so, uh, consequently, uh, uh, you, you had these periods that would go for 20 years that would be uh, wide open gambling. Uh, 
then uh, you'd have a reform group come in and they would close it down for a while. And then when it was closed down, business would drop and first thing you know, you had had this element uh, that was uh, striving to get back in. So let's check back with Robert Rains of the Gangster Museum, and he describes sort of the good old days when gambling and partying in Hot Springs were in full swing. Back in those days, pretty much all of Central Avenue and, and from Grand to Park Avenue and Whittington Avenue, those were all some form of clubs or house of prostitution or a casino, as we called them, even though it's not as opulent, let's say, as uh, Oakland or Saracen or any of these casinos today. Uh-huh. Uh, but they all had machines. I think I've got a list on the wall in the casino gallery of the museum that the newspaper put out where they gave a list of the people who paid what they called an amusement tax, mm. which was actually a tax to operate a permit to operate an illegal business because on the permit and there's that is in the museum too you see large casino small casino there was an extra fee for having a larger one and there were 101 people who paid those who had those permits as hot springs has this well current gambling profile but this legendary gambling profile there is a, a gambling museum in hot springs yes i did not know this well and it's set up um, I plan to visit it too uh-huh. when I go back, but I mean they have all the you know the paraphernalia for gaming. They've got tables set up and roulette wheels, and I mean all this original material that you would see in places like the Vapors or the Majestic, and um, they especially have slot machines. Mm-hmm. I got in touch with 84-year-old Tony Frazier, who works on the slots there, just as he did years ago uh, in the days of Oni Madden. Uh, But he worked for a guy named Dane Harris, who was another nightclub owner, and I guess you would call an associate uh, of Madden's. And Mr. Frazier talks about... um, just the sheer number of slot machines that were around and what he did. And we had machines in the Vapors and machines in the Belvedere and and all over the city and the county and restaurants and bars and whatever. And you would uh, repair and maintain those? Yes, sir. And we even... We even built some of our own because we couldn't ship anything in from out of state. It was federal laws kept us from doing that, so we had to, any updates we had, we had to do it ourselves. Oni Madden lived in Hot Springs for a long time. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, from the 30s to the mid-60s yeah. when, when he died. Yeah. Um, so... You know, like Floyd Thomas said, he didn't really work. <laughs> so I wanted to know what exactly he did, uh, you know, for the last decades of his life. And, you know, he did own the wire service in town, which was a huge moneymaker and illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, you know how that works? 
Yeah, you know what? I've I've seen the movie The Sting. Right. <laughs> and that's that whole con is based on a wire service. Right. Yeah. But if you control the wire service, you control when the information right. goes out. And that's mainly for horse racing and other sporting right. events that the bookies right. get their information. So if you control that, right. you control all the gambling uh, in the area. So, you know, Robert Raines was telling me about that. And he told me sort of how Oni Madden would would sort of skirt being a, a mobster, right, you know, right. in, in that term. And I hate to use the overturned, overused term godfather, you know, thanks to Mario Puzo. Right. But um, listen to the way Reigns describes Oni uh, and what he did do in town. He probably could have maintained in in, in New York City, but I, I think he liked it down here and he remembered it. He came down here and settled in. And that really became a nice last 40 years of his life for him. Because now, was was he involved in illegal activities in Hot Springs? Not so much. They, the club owners here that, that I had interviewed before, the last of them kind of passed away, said that he was more of a an advisor and a counselor telling them really the the best way and the cleanest way to cause the littlest trouble and the littlest news coverage. <laughs> hmm. uh, he would give them advice. They would go to him with situations and he'd say, well, you know, this here is the best way to work this out. And he was really more of a negotiator type boss than he was uh you know do this or i'll kill you apparently uh madden kind of mellowed uh i think in sing sing uh started it and then um he he learned sort of to lay low i mean not well enough that he was gonna get be exiled right to hot springs but he really kept a low profile so we end up with uh, his name, Owen Vincent Madden, died in Hot Springs of natural causes. Uh, which, which is hard is, to do as a gangster. Yes, sometimes uh, on April 24th, 1965, and he's buried in Hot Springs. Mm-hmm. You want to get back to the trivia? Yes. George Raft. George Raft, who was a legendary actor who pl- famously played tough guys and gangsters. Yes. So uh, what? see if you know this. He... At, for a while, was Oni Madden's driver. Yes, as a as a kid. Yeah. What yes. Are, what are we going to talk about next week? Well, uh, how about climate change? When I was at KTV 25 years ago, uh, we decided that we were going to do something about this fairly new topic that was coming mm-hmm. up called global warming. That's next week. What are we going to end with this week? Well, you know, I mentioned that uh, Duke Ellington had the uh, house ban there from 27 to 31. So um, I found him performing with his Cotton Club Orchestra.
Beaver Watershed Alliance will host a virtual discussion about septic systems in northwest Arkansas and their impact on environmental health in the region Thursday from noon until 1. H2 Ozarks Program Manager Shelley Dare-Smith will lead that session. Landowners and septic owners are especially encouraged to attend to learn about maintenance and funding opportunities. Conversation is open to all. It is free. Registration, however, is required. More information can be found at beaverwatershedalliance.org. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. The Northwest Arkansas Jazz Society and KUAF present the Anderson Brothers Jazz Trio at the Roots Festival headquarters in Fayetteville, Saturday, August 20th at 7 p.m. Former headliners at Carnegie Hall and Jazz at Lincoln Center, sax and clarinet twin brothers Will and Peter Anderson will be joined by guitarist Adam Mozenia. Digjazz.com for tickets. This is Ozarks at Large. Northwest Arkansas Community College is celebrating the first decade of its LIFE program, a near-peer mentorship program with an aim to empower Latino youth and increase Hispanic enrollment at the school by going into area high schools to discuss the prospect of going to college. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore recently spoke with Juanita Franklin, the Director of Hispanic Outreach Initiatives, and the director of the LIFE program, who says one of the main areas of focus is first-generation college students. To help them see uh, college in their future, um, to really be thinking about what's going to happen after high school um, and and what resources are there for them. We have a rich um, Latino um, community here in Rogers and Bent in um, Springdale, um, especially in those two school districts. Both um, have over 50% of their students identify as Hispanic or Latino. And so we know that the students are here. Um, It's making sure that they and their families understand that um, there's a place for them at NWAC, as we like to say, in NWAC, hay un lugar para ti. And uh, to help them figure out um, and understand the ins and outs of um, how to um, get a college education and how we can help them. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what percentage of folks are we dealing with who are uh, first-generation college students. You know, I think imagine that probably has a lot to do with um, why this program is so important. Is you're 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 dealing with a lot of folks who have never had college as a part of their educational experience, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I will say that although our target audience um, are Latino students, the program is open to any student in high school in grades 9 through 12. Um, And every year we do have some diversity, which is great. This year we have a lot more than usual, which is really great. So we're really happy to see that. We'll help any student. So as far as the percentage of um, first-generation students, um, I don't know exactly as far as at NWAC, um, but for the LIFE program, I'm going to say that a good 90% of the students that we serve are first-generation college students. And we see that their parents um, want to support them and encourage them to go to school, but they're not sure how to help them, you know? Right. How did the Walton Family Foundation get involved in the LIFE program? Well, we're so thankful for them. Uh, really, they got involved. They, I think they'd heard a, bit, a little bit about us. Um, we actually have a couple of life students that went through the life program back when they were in high school who are now young professionals that actually work there. Um, they are not who got us involved. Um, but when we told them, um, the folks at the Walton Family Foundation, they're like, oh, yeah, I remember now that they have mentioned the life program. But they heard about us really because I'm also involved 
involved in an organization called the Northwest Arkansas Hispanic Leadership Council. And uh, through in that council, we recently received a grant from the Walton Family Foundation for our mentoring program. Um, and they invited me to be a part of a video that they wanted to show their board members about who they are you know, supporting. And they had heard about life and asked if they can ask me some questions about it as well, which they did. Then they followed up with me and said, you know, tell us a little more about that. That sounds really interesting. Um, and so just through meetings and just, you know, kind of picking my brain and asking me all these questions. And honestly, I was oblivious to what they were like getting to. I would just love talking about life. Um, so then they invited us to apply for this grant and we were just thrilled, just thrilled because, you know, we are supported, of course, you know, with state funds. Um, that's where my, my main budget comes from. Um, however, for the work that we do and how we're growing, um, we really had a stretch and we're so thankful for partnerships that we do have in the community. Um, I will say that Cox Communications is a huge um, supporter of ours. And even they said, you know, you know, we wish we can help more. We want to be your smallest, um, you know, donor, go out, you know, and get some more. Um, and so that that's been really fantastic. And really um, what really interests the Walton Family Foundation is the how we do what we do. So we serve all these awesome students. Um, and when I tell people that we go to the high schools to talk to them, it's really not me talking to them. I, I might be there, but really um, what's wonderful about this program is we have mentors. And these mentors are young and whack college students that were just in high school one or two years ago that just went through all of these things. How do I do that? How do I apply for scholarships? Um, am I eligible for financial aid? Um, you know, what's a credit hour? You know, there's all these questions that you, we assume people know, right? And did you know what a credit hour was before you started college? I did not. Right? I had no idea what a credit hour was. Right? So, <laughs> uh, so they went through all of these things. So we we, we train them. They have to apply um, and they get interviewed for a position, a mentor position that I will say is a volunteer position. And then we train them just in the general information, general like enrollment type things, right? Really, what we want them to do is to share their own personal stories of, of how they have been able to come to school. So we get them access into the schools, into the high schools. We have great partnerships with local high schools. And we take them in. Usually, they'll spend an entire Friday at a school. And each class period, several teachers will bring their classes in. And our mentors will present to them and talk to them about how life helped them, why NWAC is so great, um, why it's a great place to start, um, the great support that they get here. Um, and again, we give them the general information to share. We will never ask one of our mentors to share anything too personal about themselves. However, they always do because they know that somebody there needs to hear it. You know, maybe it's a story about, um, I don't know, living in poverty or, you know, coming from a single single parent home, um, homelessness, you know, uh, mental health issues, being undocumented. We'll never ask them to share that, but they always do, like I said, because, you know, they know that somebody may need to hear it. Somebody who, like them, thought that because of um, not getting, you know, the best grades in high school, maybe they couldn't go to college, or maybe they were not eligible for financial aid because of their legal status. They thought that they could not go to college. And those are both wrong answers. Um, so they want to make sure that others don't go through the same things that they went through. 
And that's why it works so well. Um, it's this near peer mentoring. You know, these these young high school students say, oh, wow, you know, I remember him when he was a senior and I was a freshman or whatever. Look what he's doing now, you know. Um, and so they really um, listen to them. You know, they they have buy-in, <laughs> you know, they, they buy-in from them, right? They believe them and they're relevant. So you're celebrating your first decade of life program. What do you hope comes of the second decade of this program? Well, uh, I really, our big thing that we want is to become an official Hispanic serving institution or HSI. Um, I'm really hoping that we can get there by 2025. Um, so 25 by 25, we need to get to 25% is what we need. That is something that I, I really want to happen. That'll open up so many opportunities, both for NWAC and for the students. Um, that'll allow us to apply for certain federal funds to serve students. Um, it'll allow students to apply for certain scholarships to attend an HSI school. Um, so that right there would be fantastic to have that. The other thing would be um, to be able to um, grow the program out. I would love for other school or other areas, you know, away from Northwest Arkansas to start this sort of program. We've had quite a few people that have reached out to us that, you know, want to know, like, you know, where's your manual? How do you do that? It's so hard to explain the how we did it. Um, it started really small with this small little seed money and it was just banging on doors, you know, asking to be let in like to the schools. Um, it wasn't easy at first, but to see us grow, I would love to be able to grow our team, um, to be able to serve more students, um, get into the middle schools uh, to start earlier with the kids would be great and with the parents. Um, that would be something um, that I believe is really needed and would be really um, impactful to be able to do that. Um, but just to, to get more students here, it's a shame every year when I'm meeting um, with students that are starting here in the fall that were not part of life. And I asked them, oh, did you attend the life program? No, I didn't. You know, I couldn't come because I was working or I didn't hear about it. And I think, darn, you know, you really missed out, you know. Um, and so to to be able to better, um, I guess, get the word out, you know, more to some more students to not miss out on it, you know, our our um, partners at the schools, our teachers are already so busy, as we know. I mean, we put so much on them. So to ask them to get the word out to students about life is a lot to ask. You know, they do it. Obviously, we, we're, they're helping us. We've grown. But we need to find other ways to be able to do that so we can serve more students and nobody misses out on it. Juanita Franklin is the director of the LIFE program at NWAC. She spoke to Matthew Moore last week. Eureka Springs Downtown Historic District features an array of small art galleries and several museums, but no village art museum. As Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, a newly formed nonprofit museum of Eureka Springs art is laying the groundwork. Eureka Springs in Carroll County is a historic artist's colony, tracing back to the early 1940s when various painters, muralists, and potters established working studios as well as a summer school of the art. Over the decades, hundreds of artists and craftspeople have settled in Eureka, including Steve Beecham, who operates Spring Street Pottery, established in the 1970s. And I am the uh, chair of the board of the newly founded Museum of Eureka Springs Art here in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. And... Um, 
our purpose or our, I guess our goal uh, is to preserve and display uh, Eureka Springs art from the beginning of the city back in the 1800s through to the modern day, which is a big undertaking. And critically needed building a secure space to collect, archive, and preserve certain art and craft works created by both living and deceased Eureka artists, a concept discussed for years, Beecham says. The seven-member Museum of Eureka Springs Art Board of Directors is establishing collections parameters and has selected a site. And the location will be at the uh, Eureka Springs Community Center, uh, which is the old high school complex here in Eureka Springs. And it's sort of a neat mid-century modern um, uh, complex. And we have what used to be the old cafeteria, which is nearly a 4,000 square foot open space that uh, we will be uh, working with uh, to, to create the museum. The Open Space Museum will accommodate large and small exhibitions, as well as seasonal art shows for sale. And I'm sure we're going to have a lot more art stored than we will displayed, but we will be doing rotating exhibitions of art. And the idea with the museum is we'll have movable walls that we can reconfigure spaces to allow for special shows or even um, uh, showing of a present-day artist work um, in a gallery setting because in Eureka there just aren't a lot of gallery spaces that provide um, a large space to show art for, you know, six weeks or something like that. People just can't give up that amount of wall space. So so we're hoping we can fill that niche as well. Grant funding is being sought by the Eureka Springs Community Center to renovate the building, which will accommodate the museum. It includes a built loading dock for large and heavy artworks. Once construction's completed, museum installation will follow, Beecham says. We're just sort of, you know, kind of on pins and needles, but we're also trying to come up with design plans for our rolling walls and cost analysis and just a logo design and, you know, just all the things that you would basically do starting something from scratch. A call for donated arts and crafts work, which will be carefully curated, is also planned. A first exhibit concept has also been formulated. A Victorian painter, uh, Farnham, I think was his name, and there are several of his paintings around. And then one of the earliest art mediums that there was in Eureka was the photographic images. And people rented cameras and took photos. And so there's there's a whole a whole genre of, of stereo views and things that of Eureka and of, you know, people kissing horses and <laughs> dancing and things like that, that are kind of an art form of their own. So, so that's probably the earliest of the art that we'll have is photography. Additional exhibition eras include the 1980s countercultural art scene and the early 21st century arts community. For Ozarks at Large... I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Tomorrow on Ozarks, Erica Sanchez, author of the novel I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter, talks to us about her new memoir, Crying in the Bathroom. I really had to, to reckon with what that meant, what it meant to be a mother, 
um, and how I wanted to raise my child. That's tomorrow on Ozarks at noon and 7 on 91.3 KUAF. And you can also ask your smart speaker to play Ozarks at Large and find our shows and individual stories at ozarksatlarge.com. All right, that's tomorrow. Let's talk a little bit about Saturday. It's not too early, right? The Bella Vista Library is offering an open call to artists of every age to help design a new library card. Staffers say they're looking for a design that's colorful and represents the community. Suggested themes include Bella Vista, makes sense, the library, literacy, nature, biking, unity, and diversity. All artwork must be original, not published elsewhere, and free of copyright restrictions. Submissions can be in any medium including crayon. Entry packets can be picked up in person at the Bella Vista Library, and this is why we're talking about Saturday. Submission deadline is Saturday. The Memorial Park Summer Series in Siloam Springs continues Saturday with a performance by Oreo Blue. The concert will take place at the Chautauqua Amphitheater beginning at 7 Saturday night. The 50th annual, 50th annual Washington County Historical Ice Cream Social is also Saturday at the Headquarters House Museum in Fayetteville. There will be live music from Bill Dollar and Loose Change, plus ice cream. That begins at 3 Saturday afternoon. Tickets and more information available at WashcoHistoricalSociety.org. This is KUAF 91.3, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Eureka Springs, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Timothy Dennis produced today's show inside the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio. Contributors this Monday included Daniel Carruth, Matthew Moore, Jacqueline Froelich, and Randy Dixon with the Pryor Center. Additional material we heard today provided by the hardworking news staff at KUAR Public Radio in Little Rock and Central Arkansas. Our community engagement manager at KUAF is Jasper Logan. Our theme, the first hurrah, written and performed by Daryl Sean. Thanks for being here. We will be back tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellum.